and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. The year is turning and we're now into October. The nights are longer and growing days are shorter, but I hope you're still picking and enjoying the fruits of your labour, packing all that lovely organic produce away to enjoy over the winter months. We've got a bumper harvest in this month's podcast. Chris and I discuss how to prepare your soil for winter, how to prune raspberries, protect winter brassicas, and the joys of planting some bare root fruit bushes. And if you're planning to plant bulbs this year, we urge you to make sure they're organic. But this episode is really all about seed saving. We'd like to inspire you to save some of your own seeds. It really isn't that difficult. And we'll take you on a journey into the fascinating world of Garden Organics Heritage Seed Library. It's a unique collection of historic varieties that would be lost forever if it wasn't for a small, very dedicated team. So, wherever you are and wherever you're listening, enjoy your quiet podcast moment. Hi Sarah, how are you? I'm fine, thank good, you. Good, Except, I'm going to openly admit now, it's October and my spirits always sink in October. Really? I love this time of year. I just love it. I really do. You don't see it as the end oh, of the I love that change, that tint. I love the colours, I love the fresh air. Great time for me to get out on the lake, do a bit of fishing. I just love everything about it. I love. I think, almost um, associate it with it. There's a smell of it. I love that. As well as there's visuals, mm-hmm. the smell of it. I really, really enjoy it. Got I love mold and damp. Yeah, yeah. Just seriously, yeah. That kind of that dank smell. I love that, and I love the um, the freshness of the air, the rosy cheeks you get in the morning, and I love fog. When yeah. I lived in Japan, I, I used to miss fog so much. It's amazing what you miss, isn't it? And um, but just getting up in the morning and having those thick, soupy days, I can't yeah, really, yeah, I can't yeah. admit, I love it. And I'm, I'm just a big lover of, uh, of of autumn. Really, I love the colours. I love the fact, uh, the transition, the fact that nature goes to sleep to avoid to avoid the cold. You know. <laughs> uh, well, I kind of agree, and I think there is a natural cycle to things. What but, I find myself doing because the evenings are drawing in and yeah. it is getting cold, and and I've lost all that wonderful sun-blessed time in the garden. What I have to do is I have to think of projects to, yes, to yeah. get excited about. I think, I think the work changes. With change comes opportunity, Sarah. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for saying that. And I also, <laughs> I have, for instance, I've got a bed that's been choked with bindweed. And I've been stuck with it and skirting around it all summer. So this winter, I'm just going to hurl down a very, very thick mulch of, of manure or, or whatever, straw, leaf mould, whatever, on top of it. A good 20 centimetres yeah. or so. And then by next spring, which I'm going to start looking forward to now, by next spring, I can then begin to dig out that soil. Yeah, so they'll out. loosen that soil up, won't it? Make it easier to... Exactly. That, but yeah. Then I've got a whole new bed to work in. So you're right. It's a good time to plot and plan. Think about it. If I was designing a garden, this is the time I prefer to do it. If I'm moving anything in the garden, perennial, this is the time to do it. I kind of think you can move the pieces on the chessboard a little bit through this next period. And I think that's quite exciting. Um, I'm going to make some big changes on my balcony. I wouldn't do that. In the spring and the summer, I'm enjoying it. So for me, it throws up different kinds of opportunities. That's very true. Mm. It's a planning month. It's not a dying month. It's a planning yes. month. Yes. Now, presumably, you've got quite a lot of bare soil from pulling up plants. Your beans. I have. Well, certainly the allotment. Yep, the allotment is. Um, I'm just going in transition. Went down this week. My beans are over. My runner beans. My fresh I've got a massive bowl of them. Um, but I will. Then, I've cut those plants down. And I'm just letting them lie on the top. But I'm also putting in my uh, field beans. It's funny. We talked last month about sowing seed, didn't we? And, a little bit of green manure and the areas that you talk about weeds I have an endless supply of bindweed you'll be glad to hear and horsetail I'm, I put um, my pecs over which is like a, por- a porous sort of mulch square plastic sort of 
um, mulch over the top and pin that down. I think the secret is not to leave that open bare soil. It's the nutrients are going to get washed out. Yeah, it'll leach away, rains. yeah, and the wind erodes it. And, and that, as gardeners, I never like to see bare soil anyway, really. If you can use it, then definitely. But something with relatively low nutrient to cover it. Leaf mm. mould is perfect, and I think it's going to be a question in our, our post bag. It's a very pertinent question. Straw, yeah. grass cuttings, all mm. these things, just lay them over yeah. on the top. Even old newspaper, if you can. Yeah. Make sure it's wet and weighted down but that will kind of protect the soil i think is the best way of putting it yeah we also talked about pigeons some months oh mate you, you found i they are the my my nemesis on the balcony now you know what i get it's an amazing little story i get goldfinch on my my window feeders three little goldfinch i love they sing and they chirp they're great and uh, in fact i got up the other morning and there was no feed in the bird feeder they were all sat there going come on mate where's the feeder <laughs> waiting for me to turn up but what i've noticed is the pigeon knows to sit underneath them when they're feeding on that. So I get the goldfish and the pigeon, and there's been a low-level war going on between me and that pigeon since. Uh, so they really are the limits. I wouldn't mind if they didn't poo anywhere, everywhere, to be honest with you, but they were a bit messy, and um, on the allotment, they're certainly a big problem. Um, they, well, they are... I certainly, I've seen my cabbages stripped. I saw my chard stripped. Yeah. I even saw my lettuces stripped. And I thought, initially, I thought, these slugs are getting around and about a bit. And I realised, of course, it is the yeah. pigeons. So I've invested in some very good netting and some structures to keep the netting above my prized broccoli, which I'm looking at with great joy. But I think it is a good tip to get that netting out before the winter. Yeah. Unless you want to share your Christmas dinner with your, your pigeons, yeah. then get the netting out. Make sure it's good and tight so birds don't get trapped under it. I think it's a good little point to make is um, start to come after the elderberries are gone. The yes. Satmucus. They tend to really, you, you'll see them feeding on them quite heavily now. And as soon as that's depleted, they'll start to look around for your crops because they won't be that source of food. That tends to happen on the allotment, I've noticed. Cages are really good. You can buy them quite cheap if you want to grow stuff in and, and any kind of netting. I, I swear by it. And I want that lovely fresh kale in the, in the winter months. Mm. I've got sprouts. I've got so many sprouts on the go. Mm. They are my Christmas You'll dinner. They're sharing them with yeah, the they're, no, they're my Christmas dinner. They're not having my Christmas dinner. <laughs> but yeah, certainly they, to me, they're my biggest problem, I would say, actually. They really are. They do cause me difficulties. Um, You've presumably got compost heap or two on your Yes, I have, yeah. I've got, I've got uh, a bay, really, so uh, made out of pallets. So two compost bins and a leaf mould bin, basically, you know, in a line. Yeah, just and they're both pretty full now. Are you going to be using yes, them? Yes, they are. Well, I would believe I prefer to leave compost in till the spring. I really do. As you've said many times, as an organic gardener, rule one for us is good, healthy compost and uh, good, healthy soil rather. And compost is such a valuable thing; it is the gold of the setup, really. Mm. So I want it to be to maximise. I think if it sits there over the winter, the rain will wash the nutrient through. It will leach. You deplete it. You're not getting the best from it. So I prefer to use the compost in the spring. Now, Chris, have you ever made a compost trench? This is where, oh, yeah. as you know, you dig down, yes. you make a trench about a foot deep, yeah. and you start putting your vegetable peelings and, you know, raw, yeah. straight yeah. from the kitchen or whatever. Yeah. Have you ever done I that? I have done that. I've done that. I tend to do that in the lead up to planting something, though. So when I've mainly done this, is I've literally done it, actually, I'm going to run up to the plant and run a beans. It's kind of my favourite. I'll compost yeah. trench for that. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll fill it up and I'll put some newspaper over and I'll plant my beans on top. I wouldn't just do it for the sake of writing down the, the produce. I would do it in, a, in, a, in conjunction with some planting as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good point because people talk about it and I've never done it myself. And so, are you planting any fruit trees on your allotment? I'm thinking about, I've got a big area, right, that's been a kind of no man's land, Sarah, for quite a while. And uh, I, 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 it's going to go to fruit. I want it to fruit. I want soft fruit. I eat a lot of soft fruit, but again, um, it's not easy to get organic soft fruit is True. it or if yeah. you do, it's, it's expensive, expensive yeah, and, yeah. I, and I absolutely adore soft fruit so I've, there's a big area down there and I would like a fruit sort of miniature to um, apple trees to go in so quite varied 
This is the time when it's doing, isn't it? Bare root, always bare root. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Don't go to a garden centre and buy one in a pot. It's twice the price and it, it probably won't adjust as well. I think they come from very mollycoddled backgrounds in nice nurseries somewhere. They've got a bit of Buck Palace going on. They come out to, to the proletariat, out in the suburbs. <laughs> and yeah, I think I, I, I have been, over all the 35 years I've been a gardener, I've always swore bare root and I've always swore autumn plant. Basically, that gives you the whole, the whole winter for that plant to get its roots down. Most plants uh, toil and die early summer because of lack of moisture, because they haven't had that period to adjust. So root development is absolutely fundamental, especially with fruit trees. Get them in in the autumn, maybe get nice thick mulch around them, and then let them get their roots down. Ready There's to some the very good organic nurseries online, and it yeah. really is worth visiting them, because you, you can get these bare root plants. I know that... All my fruit trees have come from a relatively local yeah. organic and, and then inexpensive. And also, yeah. right, if you look at heritage varieties, you'll get varieties that are local, suit your area, suit your soil. So there's much more choice out there than if you pop down the garden centre, really. I think that's really worth having a little look into. Yeah. So you're going to be growing a North London apple, are you? I am indeed. Hopefully I will, yeah. With, and I've certainly got to, I've got to have raspberries under, around there. Because I just that's my pudding. That's what I love. A bit of, you know, raspberries <laughs> and strawberries uh, for pudding. And I'm in heaven. I really am, yeah. And the other thing, of course, is it's the time to be buying and planting bulbs. Yes. And I think, again, if you can, source organic. We know that the non-organic ones are treated with insecticides, with all sorts of chemicals. Yeah, it's it's big business, isn't it? It's big business, and it makes the bulb ridiculously cheap, but at what cost to the environment? Yeah, yeah. So again, source the online bulbs. You what about be... price, is it? Because I was worried that maybe... It is a little bit more expensive, yeah. but we're talking maybe 50p a bulb. And also, you've got the other problems. If you go into a supermarket, say, this time of year, there'll be loads of them in the doorway and they'll all be absolutely penny, you know. They'll be cheap as chips. You get 10 back, 10 for like a quid, etc. And so you're scooping them up. So you do need to be a bit of homework for them. It's, it's a real shame. I liken it to chicken. You yeah. can buy a chicken for two quid. Yeah. And I hate to yeah. think the conditions that chicken has been bred. Yeah, yeah. Bread. To me, if you're going to buy a chicken, buy one that's been reared organically, out of doors, all the best practice. It'll cost you more, but the taste is worth it. Yeah. And make it special. Well, you that's quite a good analogy, actually. Yeah. Good way to look at it. Yeah. So I'm going to buy some organic bulbs. They'll cost a little bit more, but I'm going to have the most beautiful planted yeah. bulb of probably no more than about 10 bulbs in it maximum. Yeah. So that's cost me five quid. Yeah. And I just will relish those bulbs. Yeah. Well, I'm going to plant my entire balcony with bulbs, so I'll tell you how much that's going to cost okay. me. <laughs> you can also get organic bulb fibre as well. Yeah. Or other, rather than organic, it's also peat-free. And yeah. that's another yeah. crucial thing yeah. as well. Yeah. It's yeah. worth it. Yeah. Don't degrade peat bulbs just for the sake of No, well, I, I, all my, most of my, all, all my compost on my balcony is organic, and I, most of that will stay in there for the, for the, for the spring bulbs. Chris, I'm conscious that a lot of what we talk about is essentially good gardening. It's yeah. good gardening tips. And we don't always use the word organic. And I think possibly that's because you and I have been doing it for so long. We kind of take it. It's embedded yeah. within us. That's how we would do it. Well, possibly. Quite a lot of horticulture and organic horticulture overlaps, I would say. So the gardening I, I've done all my life hasn't really changed dramatically because I've decided to call it organic gardening. Obviously, I'm not using it. I use organic fertiliser and I don't use pesticide. Um, I'm much more, I think, as an organic gardener, closer to the gardening. I think it's much more of a hands-on form of gardening. I think what happens when you don't organic garden is you step back and you use artificial means to, 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 to control the situation. I think that's what it means to me. So I apologise, actually, right? Maybe I don't mention organic enough in many ways, but 
To me, I'm raking on organic soil or I'm raking soil, it's the same thing, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, yeah. it does make sense. And I think because it's in, ingrained within us to do it that way and it would feel odd, yeah. frankly odd, to go and buy some chemicals or whatever. But I also think you're right. It's, it's good gardening, Yes. essentially. To me, it's, it's not, good practice. That's all it is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it comes down to feeding the soil. We know that's the, the absolute tenet of organic gardening is have a healthy Diversity, soil. Diversity, healthy soil. And really, the massive thing for me, organic gardening, is observation, just being in tune with your garden, being up close and personal with it. That, to me, is an absolute keystone in a way. Obviously, soil in terms of the practicality of it, but emotionally, actually, it, 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 I feel much further, much closer to the subject matter since I've decided to garden completely organically. And I also think this danger of striving for a quick result and a perfect look. I think television seduces. Yeah, it does. Televisions, it. magazines. I think you've got to realise that you know you're sharing your space, and you have to remember Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. the whole essence of gardening being a journey, and so realising that one didn't go very yeah. well. But there's another one, and I can try that instead. Well, it's like a bit, a bit like it's the goldfinch story again. I want those characters in my garden. I want them waiting for their growth. That house. What is gardening without that? Yeah. What is gardening without that? Is the absolute essence. Those little moments of simple pleasure. And I just think you're closer to it when you garden organic. October is the best month to save your own seeds. Chris, what do you think are the benefits of saving your own seeds? Well, it's good fun to start with, I'd say that. But obviously, you've got the, the immediate benefits is it's easy, cheap. I think that... You've kind of got also, you know those plants are going to perform because they're already in your garden. You've seen how they've done. You know, you kind of know what you're getting. Um, And also, you're guaranteed, main thing, it's going to be organic because you've grown them and you know you've been organic. And I think that is a fundamental part of seed saving, definitely. You know, that's, that's a massive one. And also, you know, us gardeners, we have an expression. If you want to keep a plant, give it away. So you can give some seed to your friend. Yeah. But the fact it takes so little effort is really worthwhile. But I think if you're nervous, if you haven't done it before, and I completely associate with that, it took me a long time to have confidence in myself that I could save my own seed and they would grow next year. It took me a long time to learn that. And I think if you're nervous, you haven't done it before, go onto our website, the Garden Organic website. There's lots of advice there on how to start with easy things like peas, beans, tomatoes even. And we've got a YouTube video, you're on it, yep. um, showing people how to do it. So so try it. Go on, try I it. Think you've got you'll nothing find, to no, lose. Absolutely. And I think you'll find it's no... I think it seems like quite... If you say seed saving, it sounds quite a complicated process, but it, it's important to point out that it's not. It's actually quite a simple thing to do. Yeah. Um, our interview this month is our own Heritage Seed Library. Now, Chris, I know that you spent time with Katrina. The wonderful Katrina, of course, yeah. Head of the Heritage Seed Library. But... First of all, um, let's just talk about the seed library itself. It conserves heritage and heirloom varieties, but not as a seed bank. It's not a gene bank. It's not kept in a cold store. The clue is in the name. It's a library. Collection, isn't it, basically? We can all tap into. It's a collection of seeds that are no longer commercially available. And we here at Garden Organic are keeping those seeds viable for future generations. So these are local varieties. Things like the Bath lettuce or the, I don't know. The London carrot. The Cockney carrot. Well, there you go. Oh, the Shetland yeah, <laughs> it's quite interesting as well uh, to say about HSL because uh, um, Lawrence Hills was a genius. The foresight he had to set this up, that work is so fundamental, so vital. Well, that's true. And if you want to know more about the Heritage Seed Library, again, go to our website. And even more importantly, maybe join it. All you have to do is tack it on to your um, Garden Organic membership 
And if you do that, you can take your pick of the seeds from the Heritage Seed Library catalogue and you'll be growing varieties which nobody else will yes. in your allotment. Oh, there's a great narrative to it all. As, you know, Not is it important, but there's just a charm to it all, isn't there? That's the yes. word, there's a charm to it all. But there's an, there is an importance to it. We're, we're preserving a biodiversity as well because once the list, the commercial list was produced way back in the 1970s, this listed all the varieties which could only be sold commercially. Yeah. That meant all the other local varieties that had to fall by the wayside. They yeah. could not be bought anymore. Now that means you've lowered, you've, you've reduced the gene yeah. pool. Yeah. So you're losing that biodiversity. And that's quite serious in yes. an age when we're threatened by all sorts of climate change yeah. and whatever. Exactly. And also another thing, if you talk about organic and carbon footprint, etc., a lot of the seeds we, we get from our normal places have all come from China most of them so they're bought in bat in bulk over here so you know you've got less variety you're bringing them on from the other side of the earth when we can producing all this, this local food locally Chris met the head of the seed library Katrina Fenton so how did the heritage seed library come about uh, well, we've been around for a little while now, since the 1970s, and we were established back at a time when seed laws were changing, and Lawrence Hills, founder of Garden Organic, realised at the time that the effect of that would be that many varieties that were widely available to buy uh, would start disappearing. He was quite right, and we think over the years, hundreds, possibly thousands of varieties that were um, commercially available are no longer around. So the Heritage Seed Library was set up to capture some of those, and we've grown since then to a very large collection of around 800 heritage varieties of vegetable seeds. So basically, without this library, all of these seeds would have gone into history. We wouldn't have them anymore. Yeah, yeah you're right. I think um, many of the varieties would simply disappeared and if it wasn't for the heritage seed library because they're not commercially listed um, they wouldn't be available anywhere else that's amazing so what qualifies the word heritage what do you mean by heritage uh, that's a good question it means lots of different things to different people i think and we loosely divide our collection up into three types uh, which we call heritage so we have our true historic varieties uh, ones you could probably look up in a book somewhere. Martok Broadbean, for example, we think records describing this date back to around 1294. We've got uh, heirloom varieties, so these are very often varieties that have been saved by a family for multiple generations or relate to a particular local area. Um, good example of that is 41st P, a Devonshire variety. It's called 41st because that's an expression used to describe something that's really good. So it relates to that particular part of the country, dates back to uh, probably the beginning of the century and is a variety that's been kept for that purpose. And some of our variety are ex-commercial varieties, perhaps ones that predate the 1970s uh, where people have discovered they can't buy them anymore so they've saved their own seeds and we've managed to get hold of them. Um, a good example of that is Ryder's Midday Sun Tomato, 1920s yellow tomato that was pr provided by the Riders Seed Company. Riders as in made famous by the Riders Cup. That's amazing. I love the way all these seeds have got there, the narrative that goes with them. It's, it's historical, but it's cultural almost, isn't it, as well? Absolutely. So what's so special about the collection, do you think? I think what our members love about the collection are the stories behind them. The fact that these are not widely available, the fact that they've been rescued or saved in some way. And of course, for all of these varieties, somewhere, someone along the line decided that they were good to grow 
and wanted to save the seeds for, for them. So for whatever reasons, and for some of them it's because they were particularly prolific, uh, looked lovely, had a nice flower, had a good story behind them, or were historically significant for their region. These are all really great reasons for us to have these in our collection. That kind of leads me into the next question really, is how do you decide what comes into the collection? Well, we, at any given time, might have a queue of 20 to 30 varieties that people have sent to us for us to consider. Um, and we can be quite picky about that. We really do only want varieties that would fall into those. So there's categories. a vetting system, basically. There is a very strict vetting system. Most things that we are sent probably don't make it past the first hurdle. When we want to compare it with what we might already have in the collection, perhaps it's synonymous with something that's commercially available, always looking for something that's a little bit on the special side. So we do have a process, we look at the seed, we look at the history behind it, we'll do some growing trials, we want to make sure that it's healthy, it hasn't cross-pollinated, and then once it's passed all of those kinds of tests that we can include it in our collection, and that's when we want to have the seed bulk it up and make it available for other people to grow. So you've got a lot of narrative, viability tests, these kind of things that you go through. That's really interesting. And I know you've got gene banks like the one at Wakehurst Place. Why is HSL different from a gene bank? Yeah, we're not really a gene bank. We do have a cold store and we do have seed samples. Uh, and obviously our purpose is to conserve those varieties so that they'll be available for the future. But we see ourselves as a conservation organisation because the best way to conserve varieties is to get people growing them again. Brilliant work. And obviously you're very passionate about it, Katrina. I can tell you really care about it. So maybe in your own words, why do you think the seed library is so important? Well, it's important for lots of things. You've mentioned the idea of our cultural heritage. There are great stories and histories. But it's not just about looking back. It's really important. It's about conserving these genetic resources for the future. They have resilience. They have certain drought and pest disease resistance, some of them. And of course, for us, with the challenges of climate change, which is happening already, having the access to these kinds of genetic resources is really important. So at the moment, you could argue commercially, there's a very narrow band of stuff we use, isn't it? If you think about uh, how many varieties of tomato you might be able to get at your local shop or supermarket, we have dozens and dozens of different types of varieties of tomatoes in our collection, which are not available elsewhere. So having that resource, being able to find out more, and we're learning more and more about what we have in our collection, is really important to help um, generate resilience for our food in the future. Food security, we're involved Absolutely. in food security then. Yeah. And seed sovereignty as well, yeah. taking control of... Very. So in a little way, I suppose not many people would know that, so you're kind of the quiet hero, aren't you, in the background? Well, right? I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but you know... Yeah, no, I would <laughs> certainly, say that, yeah. Certainly, you know, myself and our team, we love what we do, and it's really important. We see the importance of it, and we see the enthusiasm that we have from our supporters and our members and those who grow for us. It's amazing. I really want to get involved. How do I set about doing that? Well, I suppose the simplest, best way is to become a member of the Heritage Seed Library. Uh, you become a member of Garden Organic as well. So um, your membership supports the work we do. As a member of the Heritage Seed Library in particular, you will get access to our wonderful Heritage Seeds. So each year we produce a seed list, making available about 150 of our 800 varieties. And members can select six packets of seed free from our collection plus a lucky dip, uh, and they can then use those seeds to grow them each year. Um, it's a great way to do it. Obviously, we're a charitable organisation, so uh, we always welcome any financial support do the work we do. And for those members, there's always the opportunity for them to help us even further as those fantastic seed guardians. So some of our members decide to take on extra responsibility um, who will help us by taking on maybe one or two varieties every year and bulking up 
those seeds, sending it back to us so that we can continue to make those heritage varieties available to our members in future seed lists. So it's not so difficult, Katrina. I join the Garden Organic, I become a member of HSL, and then I'll be growing plants that are completely unique. Absolutely. Very unique. You'll be the envy of your local allotment uh, holders, and they will all be varieties that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Of course, for many of our members, the real appeal is that they're growing something that's not only different, but it might relate to somewhere they live or a particular historical period that they're interested in, or they just love the stories behind them. So there's something for everyone if they want to grow something a little bit different. some of the work that goes on behind the scenes at HSL. Because they don't just store seeds, they also grow the plants that provide further seed for future generations. So I started off in the polytunnels back on a hot July day where I met seed officer Hallie. I'm now surrounded by huge plants of runner beans with their scarlet flowers. It's a variety called Bok and Hallie is standing here with a paintbrush. Hallie, tell me what you're doing. So I am playing the role of an insect and hand-pollinating our runner bean plants. Why do you have to do it and not the insects? Well, traditionally, when you're growing runner beans, bees or, or other insects will do the job of, of pollinating your flowers, and which will then produce your beans. But because we are producing to uh, conserve the seed of these varieties, we want to minimise any crossing that might ha happen between any runner bean varieties. So that keeps the variety pure with you acting as the bee? Yes, so we grow the runner beans in isolation from each other in polytunnels and then we do the job of the bee by transferring pollen from one flower to another flower. Remind me again why it's important to isolate. So all the importance of isolation varies between the type of uh, vegetable. So some plants uh, like peas or vegetables like peas we don't have to worry about isolating because they have a perfect flower they're self-pollinating and it's very unlikely that there's going to be any sort of crossing between varieties whereas with our runner beans they are a close flower they do get insect pollinated and therefore in order to keep the variety pure um, and ensure that the seed that we're producing is going to be true to type. And of course this is something that's very serious for the HSL because we are growing particular varieties which have been grown over the years and they yes. have the history behind them and we have to keep those varieties pure. It looks fascinating and intricate work. I think I'll leave you to a happy morning's pollen painting. <laughs> <laughs> You're channeling your inner bee. Yeah. I'm now in an equally hot polytunnel with Hallie and she's put down her paintbrush with, in front of a huge squash plant. It's a variety called Bubble and Squeak, withdrawn from commercial sale and therefore is now within our own heritage library. And she has in her hand one flower which she's going to put to another flower within the squash plant. Hallie, perhaps you could explain. Yes, so here I've got a male squash flower from one of our bubble and squeak plants and you can tell the difference between a male and a female flower because the female ones have a little embryo uh, which looks like a tiny unfertilised squash at the bottom of its flower. I can see that, it's like a bulge isn't it? And so what I'm going to do is play the role of an insect again and peel the petals away off the male flower and brush the pollen all along all inside the stigma of the female flower and then what we recommend doing particularly if you're doing it at home and we do it just to remember which one we've which ones we've pollinated ourselves 
is to tie a little bit of twine around the petals. So you've now kept that variety absolutely pure. It's a month or so later and I've left the polytunnels and I'm now in the HSL offices where I find Rachel who is preparing some seed for storage. With some interesting brown scrubby sort of flowers. Absolutely. These are the dried heads of carrot flowers. So obviously the, the seeds have started to form in there. How long did it take for the seed to form on a carrot plant? This is our second year plants. So we grow, in the first year we grow carrots as anyone would at home, growing them to, to produce roots. At the end of the season, we lift all of the roots. We choose the ones that are of the best quality and that best represent the variety. Uh, we usually replant between 30 and 50 of the best roots and let them grow onto their second year. And they produce beautiful, fragrant flowers. Very um, pretty white flowers, aren't they? Very, very pretty. Smell very nice too. Um, and then eventually this sort of time of year, they start to produce the seeds and the seeds form each of the each of the little tiny flower heads on the umbels produces a single seed. So for anyone growing their carrots who want to save their seeds, it's a two-year job. Isn't it's it, a two-year job and they also need isolating ah. because they cross-pollinate freely. Ah, promiscuous carrots. Promiscuous carrots, absolutely. Um, so yes, yeah, so we tend to only grow one variety into its second year in each of our tunnels. So Rachel's now got a carrot flower in her hand, brown because it's now gone over and gone to seed. What are you going to do with it now, Rachel? Okay, so for each of these individual heads, what I'm going to do is remove the seeds and rub them between my fingers now. So you're, you're rubbing them between your fingers over the top of a over sieve? Over the top of a sieve so that we can take out any of the chaff and keep the best seed. Um, you do need to be a little bit careful because they can be a little bit spiky so if you're doing lots of them you might need gloves. So some sort of fine sieve and then all you're doing is rubbing the seed head between your fingers and That's the chaff right. stays on top, That's sieve right. catches that and the seed falls through to the bottom. That's right, let's, hopefully. Let's have a look at those seeds that they look like. Okay. A little tiny, tiny They're very small specks. Yes. and they also, very little. When you buy carrots from um, a commercial supplier, very difficult to see but they're very smooth seeds in reality when they come off the the seed head they actually have little tiny sort of almost little hooked spikes yes on them. they look like little fuzzy ants they something. are they are like little fuzzy ants and um they <laughs> commercial seed suppliers run them through a special machine that removes those unfortunately ah. we don't have one of those but why so. would they want to remove them well i think it just makes them easier to handle because the problem you have with them when they've got these little spikes on sometimes is they tend to stick together a little bit i see so what we'll do we'll just and you're going to separate out every single one of those little tiny brown absolutely specks. they will be separated off By all hand. the little they'll be using a variety of sieves yeah. getting progressively smaller when we have a reasonable number of seeds if we have some dusty chaff left on them we'll run them through our winnowing machine over there oh yes um, Rachel's demonstrating to me in front of a machine that looks a little bit like Professor Brainstorm invented it but I have no doubt it's quite high tech but of course when you're at home and saving your own seed you don't necessarily you need don't. that machine absolutely not I mean for us because of the volumes of seed that we do it speeds the process a little exactly. but nevertheless there are still things the majority of the work and the stuff that we do here the majority of the first stages of seed cleaning is very manual indeed from from cleaning carrots to podding beans 
Thank you, Rachel. That's been really helpful. Now we're joined by Lucy, another seed officer, who's going to be in charge of drying and storing the seed. That's right. Now the seed has been cleaned, it will be dried. So it's put into a large plastic tray. Uh, It has to be spread very thinly in one layer. And in the tray, it will be put in the drying room. Oh, let's have a look at the drying room. You can hear the fans. This feels quite warm. Yeah, that's right. But obviously very dry. Yeah, it's a climate-controlled room, and all the seeds are put in here to dry for a set amount of time, depending on how big they are. And our carrot seeds then will be here? Since they're small, they'll be here for about seven days. Okay, I can see trays full of great beans as well, look like broad beans. Yeah, the larger ones will be here for a couple of weeks, labelled very carefully so we can't have any confusion, and left here until they're much drier. I can already feel my mouth slightly drying up. You can't stay in here for more than half an hour, it wouldn't be safe. (laughs) So yeah, so then seven days later, um, they'll be taken from here, they'll be packaged up, and then they're put in the seed store. And my final visit was to the dispatch room, where I found Rachel again, who this time was busy preparing the hundreds and thousands of seeds and packets ready for dispatch to members later in the year. Rachel, you have the master list of all the seeds that are available. We do. We have 800 accessions. We have eight, we, we term them as accessions, but these are varieties that have been formally accepted into the Heritage Seed Library collection. And each year we have to look at the stocks of seeds that we have and we whittle down from this 800 wonderful varieties around 150 for inclusion in the members catalogue. How do you make that decision? You've got 800 possibles <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you're down to 150 or... Well, the first, I mean, obviously the most important thing that we look at is availability of, availability of seeds. We've got the world's most humongous spreadsheet, which records every single batch of seeds that we hold of each variety. So that is set up in such a way that it calculates the number of packets that we would be able to provide, not only across the whole stock that we have, but across age of seed. So it also helps us to look at using up our stock sensibly so that we're not wasting any seeds. And also it helps us to work out a a good spread, if you like, across the whole collection. So you've got a mixture of, say, peas, beans, cabbages. Absolutely. It's about 200 varieties that we know provide the seed for. We know the seed's good regardless of seed age. So I was going to, that's interesting you say that because I was just going to ask, sorry, interrupted by the drying machine again. Some of these seeds are quite old, aren't they? Some of the seeds that go out to members, yes. I mean, we, we try to keep them within perhaps three to four years, but everything that goes into the catalogue, every batch is germination tested. And we insist on 90%, which is actually, incidentally, higher than is the standard recommendations for commercial seed. So then there comes a wonderful moment in later in the year, around about November time, is that right, when you compile your final list? Well, we have a final, a final list is a whisker away, Sarah. So we, we're down to the 200 varieties at the moment. How many packets of seeds do you send out? Okay, so the past couple of years we've sent out about three and a half thousand seed orders. They take six packets each, so we're looking at sort of 20,000-ish packets plus a lucky dip packet. So we're looking at around 20 to 25,000 packets of seeds every year. That's an awful lot from a very small team. Absolutely. And all hand packeted, all the packets hand stamped. Wow. It's a fun time of year. It's a time of year that we love. (laughs) We scoop seeds and we count beans. 
<laughs> in your sleep probably. Absolutely, yes. I've been doing it a long time as well, Sarah. So yes, it's a, it's a nice time of year. It's something, it's the culmination of, of, of our years growing, obviously. So it's an important time for us. Rachel, that's been really interesting. Thank you. I feel I've got a much better picture now. We've been in the polytunnel with Hallie. Now we've been with you, understanding how the lists are created and the seeds are sent out. It's been really helpful. Thank it's you, been Rachel. a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. for our ever-popular post bag. Chris and I are joined in the Garden Organic offices by Dr Anton Rosenfeld and Hannah Rogers. Hannah, you've got three questions for us today. I certainly do, yes. Um, so the first one is very relevant for autumn. Um, someone's written in and said that their garden is covered with leaves from the next door neighbour's tree and what's the best thing to do with them all? Okay, so I think one of the best things you could be doing and it's a very good way of getting to know your neighbour is to make leaf mould out of the leaves. And it depends somewhat on the, on the tree because some leaves are a lot better than, than others and um, particularly beech leaves, oak leaves and cherry leaves, um, horn beams are very good for making leaf mould because these leaves, um, they've got less lignin in them. That's a very sort of tough substance which takes a long time to break down and they will tend to break down more quickly than other leaves. We tend not to put leaves in our compost bins because they take a lot longer to break down than all the rest of the compost. So you'll find you're left with a lot of dry leaves in your compost um, and that can make it take longer for the whole lot to break down. Isn't that, Anton, because it's not a composting process making leaf mould, it's more a sort of fungal process which works at a cooler temperature? Exactly. It's... You need more sort of fungi to break down the tough substances like cellulose and lignin, which old leaves are, are full of, whereas it's the bacteria that go for more of the sort of junk food, the quick party food. The kitchen waste, it's a, it's a good way to tell, I suppose, as well, how long a leaf can break down. It's like a plane tree is your worst nightmare for leaf mould because it's a very waxy cuticle. So anything that's kind of tough and you can pull and stretch, it won't break or tear, you know it's going to take longer as opposed to, like you say, the yeah. cherry tree leaf, which is quite fine and quite flimsy, yeah. And anything with a glossy surface as well is going to take... Yeah, anything, anything with a waxy cuticle, yeah. basically, uh, like a leaf covering will, will take longer to break down. It would normally, I mean, if you've got an ash or a willow or a maple tree with its leaves, it, it could take up to a year, maybe, to make good, effective leaf mould. But you can speed that up, can't you, by breaking down the leaves yourself, by running over them with a lawnmower, and also mixing them with lawnmower cuttings as well. This all helps in the breakdown process. Exactly, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That does does help. I mean, even it can take longer than a year if you don't. So you want to be shredding them a bit to speed up the process, is what you're saying, and to break yeah, them down a bit. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's quite funny, when I was on the parks where many moons ago, back in my youth, we used to do leaf raking for about eight weeks in New York. We used to dread it, because it's just like all day you'd be raking leaves. It's only all this time later you kind of appreciate how valuable they are, and it is kind of a bonanza, a natural bonanza, isn't it, in the autumn? So you get the colour, but you get all this really useful material as well. So if you don't have trees in your garden, and if you don't have a friendly neighbour whose trees are dropping leaves into your garden, there's no reason why you can't go into the parks or alongside roads. Or well, I think, lot, I think a lot of them... Just don't go into woodland. Yeah. Because leaf drop in woodland is crucial to the whole ecosystem and the cycle of life there. Yeah, I think so. I think also a lot of parks now, my local park, is, have been run by volunteers because obviously they've been hit by the, by the reduction in local authority budgets. And um, so why not do a communal 
leaf mould bays. So literally get a couple of some four by four timber, uh, hammer them in with a sledgehammer into the ground, put some chicken wire around, you've got a leaf mould bin straight away and then everyone can contribute and everyone can take care of it. Anton, remind us why we're making leaf mould. Well, leaf mould is a very valuable substance. It's not actually very high in nutrients like compost is, but it, it's got a lot of organic matter in, and it's also very beneficial for as a sort of food source for bugs and, and general sort of biological life in the soil. So it's very good as a general all-round soil improver. Um, if you sieve it as well, it does actually make quite a good seed sowing compost. I think it's particularly effective, as you say, to help with the soil structure. So if you have a heavy soil, a clay soil, if you incorporate leaf mould within that, it'll help break it down a bit, which allows the roots to get better access to moisture and air and whatever. And also good if it if it's can use it for seed, then it takes pressure away from the peat compost in that industry as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. So yeah. yeah. So how do you make it? That's that's a good, good <laughs> million question. dollar question. <laughs> um, one of the most important things is that it's kept relatively moist. So I wouldn't put it actually in a plastic compost bin because that will it'll dry out mm. in there. Um, so there are two main sort of methods of making it. One is just to put it in a plastic bin bag and leave it behind your shed for up to a year or even a couple of years. Or if you've got a lot more to make, then you can drive in some posts into the soil and put some chicken wire mm. around and the, the rainfall will help to sort of keep it moist. Yes, because if it's in plastic bags, I've learned, first of all, make holes in the plastic bags, which is quite satisfying to do with a fork or something, but also remember to water it. So if you're collecting the leaves, your neighbour's leaves up on a dry day, make sure that the leaves are moist when they're in the bag and they stay moist. And do they need, is it like compost, do they need turning to it or do you just literally leave it to get on with it? I mean, I might occasionally turn it, but generally I find it just gets on with it itself. Yeah, you've got a corner, a dark corner to put it in or somewhere out of the way and then forget about it. But do do have a word with your neighbour if you can, see if you can share the fruits of it. Brilliant. Great. So on a similar vein, someone's written in to say they've got some lovely compost from their compost bin, and should they be putting it on the soil now? I'm not. I'm not for it at all, really. I, I think spring is the best time because obviously that's how how the, you know the temperature warms up, um, and then obviously the bacteria and the things that break it down are much more active. I think it'll just sit there through the winter, really. When I worked at Kew Gardens, they were putting it out a lot in the in the autumn. They were, we were mulching the beds. That was the thing. It was one of the big sort of early sort of late autumn, early winter jobs, and it wasn't breaking down. It sit there and it started to affect soil pH etc so I'm definitely more for spring spreading really. I think mulching bare soil is a very good practice and we, we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast but something with low nutrients in it don't waste your lovely nutrient rich compost would you agree Anton? I'd, I'd agree on that I mean particularly if you put a lot of kitchen scraps into your garden compost it's going to be pretty high in nutrients and if you've got nothing growing there to take those nutrients up then they are just all going to get you just leach through that. the soil won't they you'll just yeah. lose them yeah what you can do if your bin is full or your heap is full and you want to keep going adding to it you can always take some off bag it up and then you've got bags of compost ready for next spring so would you if you put it on the soil in spring do you put it on just before you're sowing or do you put it on and give it a while i would say you want to give it at least a month early march i think yeah. probably when i'll go for it so it's a kind of judgment game as to when things are beginning to warm up that's when your compost is going to be most effective so don't put it out too early is my advice so general rule of thumb don't put it out 
now leave it so leave it in the bed over autumn winter and will it still carry on breaking down breaks down less o- over the winter it's certainly all the microbes it's all to do with heat isn't it really and yeah it's the warmer it is the quicker it'll break down brilliant okay thank you um so the next one's come from someone who's clearly had a, a lovely harvest of raspberries and then now asking when's the best time to prune them and how should they do it okay i think this can either be answered in a very simple way or in a slightly more complicated way. Start simple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So simple is basically you're going to cut down the raspberry canes that have fruited this year. Whether you have what's called summer fruiting raspberries or autumn fruiting raspberries, and they're two relatively distinct varieties. If you cut down the canes that have borne fruit this year, then they will grow again next year. Chris, you wouldn't be doing it now, though, would you? No, I probably I always associate in my mind just through years of practicing of, of doing any pruning on on them. Uh, the same time as I'd probably spur apples late win, late winter, uh, late February, early March. I'd obviously make sure there wasn't the the wind chap uh, wasn't minus ten or something, or there was frost on the ground. But I would look be looking to do it around then. It's a good old warm winter's job, really. That's kind of how I see it. So the slightly complicated answer, Hannah, is that with these two distinct varieties, the autumn varieties will fruit on the stems that have grown since that spring. In other words, within that growing season. The summer fruiting varieties will fruit on stems that have been growing the year before. So you want to be purist about your pruning if you have a if you know you have a summer fruiting variety look for the stems that have fruited this year they're usually slightly yellowed the new stems which have been growing this year are more green and more pliable less woody they're the ones that are going to fruit next year the obvious question is if you've inherited some lovely raspberry bushes and you haven't got a clue what how would you then treat them it's actually not as difficult as it sounds i would go along with chris i would definitely um, prune them in later winter because when all the leaves have fallen off it's actually much easier to see what you're doing and it's actually really quite obvious which are last year's canes and which are next year's canes the Next year's ones, like Sarah said, are very sort of pliable and green. Those are the ones you want to leave. And ones which have already fruited have that sort of brown woody look to them. And those are the ones you want to get rid of. So even if you're not sure which type you have, then it is quite easy just as a rule of thumb, just cut down anything that has already fruited. I have to say, I, I take my hat off to this person who is growing raspberries. I think we all should, because to buy organic raspberries is phenomenally expensive and not even necessarily available. And yet we know that soft fruits probably have more pesticides added to them than any other uh, fruit or vegetable variety. So your own organic raspberries are such a treat. Brilliant, thank you. Next month, we have a very special interview with one of the country's best wildlife gardeners, Kate Bradbury. Chris discusses with her the importance of creating a wildlife-friendly garden and how, with just a few small steps, you can provide shelter and food for a variety of creatures. You're creating your own tiny organic ecosystem, which will help the planet in these troubling times. So thank you for listening, and until next month, Enjoy your growing and gardening wherever you are. Our thanks to Kevin MacLeod for providing the music.